Mental Health and Addiction Podcast, otherwise known as The Map, where it's okay to ask for directions. I'm Kimberly Walsh of Ladies Landing, uh, so we're home for Women on the Cape, and my partners in crime are Andy Bernstein and Kristen Perry Long. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Um, we're also being streamed live at Foxborough Cable Access TV with Michael Weber at the helm. Um so we're going to have a great show for you guys today. We're going to meet David Jensen, who is a former U.S. Olympic hockey player, also an NHL hockey veteran. And later in the show, we have Sadie Bernero joining us, who is an author. Um, so before we get started, why don't we check in and see how we're all doing? How's everybody doing with the pandemic, et cetera? I'm hanging. I'm good. I'm better. Yeah? Yeah, I feel better. I, you know what? You know, if you put it all into perspective, right? It's like we could be in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we could be in New York. We could have, you know, have this thing. You know, you see Chris Cuomo has it. You, 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 Boris Johnson. You know, so, you know, for me, I'm trying to keep it all in perspective and say, you know, it's not ideal, but you know what? It could always be worse, right? Yeah, it's a lot worse. Uh, people are people are in Massachusetts though are starting to die. Like it's starting to happen. Um, our numbers are starting to go up, and that really scares me. It scares me for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people uh, that are in recovery, and they're really starting to struggle. Uh, the honeymoon of being quarantined has kind of worn off and the realization has started to really set in and it's not fun anymore. Um, and people are really struggling and that really concerns me. Um, I've put so many people into treatment in the last five days. It's insane to me how many people I put into treatment and the treatment centers in the state of Massachusetts, at least are full, like full. Are they really? Yeah. Like they're full. They're not just like, oh, we're at like, you know, 60%. They're at like 110% busting at the seams. It's, it's, it's crazy. It makes sense though. I mean, if you're, you're isolated, which is such a big problem with addiction and, and then, you know, you, you know, it's like, how can't you, how couldn't you, you know, as a way to cope? You know, it's only, I mean, it seems like a natural thing, right? Absolutely. And that's, that's a key to people in recovery is connection is like the foundation of the 12-step program. We we connect through other people. We go to meetings. We, you know, we hug one another. We have this connection. That's what keeps us sober. Um, and I've heard, like, people in sober homes dropping like flies. Um, it's, it's a scary state of affairs. We've got to... You know, they've got to lose, use the Zoom meetings, but it's kind of not the same, you know? So it's something to be cautious about. Yeah, the yeah. Zoom meetings have kind of worn off. Like, they're not fun anymore. Um, yeah. They're getting hacked. Yeah. Um, again, the honeymoon effect is sort of, you know, I've, I've got people that are like, hey, we're going to have a, a, a physical meeting. And, you know, go for it. But respect social distancing. Do it outside. Um, as much as you want to give each other a hug or whatever, hold off. And, you know, I had a, I have a kid that checks in with me weekly and daily, excuse me. And, um, he did it and he was like, you know, we only invited 
like 15 people to keep it small. But right. word got out and before they knew it, they had 45 people at that meeting. And there's, it shows you that, that need for like the physical, physical aspect of, of being able to be together. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's weird. So tonight I, uh, it's Passover. I've been invited to go to two seders and one's in Pittsburgh with my family in Pittsburgh. And the other is, um, here in Mansfield. And so that, that's kind of interesting because I wouldn't go if, you know, on a normal occasion, I probably wouldn't, but I'm here, you know, it's not a big time commitment. So I'm going to go, I'm not saying it's ideal situation, but I mean, to try to find a positive in all this, I mean, I think you have to try to find some kind of positive, right? Or no? Absolutely. It's the key, I think. Power of positivity. Power of prayer, positive, power of positivity. It's hard, though. It's hard. Yeah. yeah, Christian and I were just talking about it yesterday, how it's difficult. It's difficult to um, remember something as simple as the serenity prayer, you know? Uh, when mm. you're in a tough time, you kind of st- tend to stay in a bad spot you get, right. until something like something affects you and bumps you out of that, that, you know, that place, which is hard. It's hard to do. It's, you know, I feel for so many people, um, you know, all you can do is do, give it your best shot and keep, keep connected on the phone or on zoom. You ha- we have to stay connected somehow, you know, and know that this too shall pass. What right? are some of the things right. that you guys are telling people who you interact with. I, I, I know for me, I talk to people in, um, you know, friends and I try to, I try to not take it on myself, you know, cause everybody's in a different phase of life. So I'll talk to some people who are really, really struggling and I have a tendency to like take on their stuff, which affects me. So I'm trying to like, you know, just listen. But I guess my question for you guys is like, what are, what are you, how are you dealing with people? What are, how do how do you maintain your um, inner strength when you talk to other people? Um, so I don't know. I mean, it kind of, it depends on who you're talking to. If I'm talking to a mother, I mean, uh, a couple of nights ago, I was on the phone with a family. Um, their daughter was in another state. And, um, they were here, they couldn't go and get her uh, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, and so tried to remind them of, you know, being honest and talking about the recovery that she had. She relapsed, unfortunately, but it was okay. I'm like, she was okay. She was open to help, you know, focus on those things instead of all the things that you can't control. Like I can't get there. It's 10 o'clock at night. I can't get to another state that's 1500 miles away. But what I can do is I can talk to her on the telephone. I can reach out and ask for help, which the family did. And hopefully that help is going to help navigate their loved one to wherever it is that they go. So it's a lot of redirection. It it Mm -hmm. really is. Um, You just have to to redirect and keep redirecting until you find that right path that works for them. Well, you know, that's a great segue because we actually do have um, someone who has been making a difference, working with people in sobriety for a number of years, Um, David Jensen. And uh, 
you know, it's time to in- let's introduce him because he's sitting there in a little box. Hopefully his uh, his mic is on. Dave, you there? Is he muted? I think he's muted. He's not muted. Dave, can you hear us? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I spy with my little eye the bridge in <laughs> California. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, he's connecting to his audio. Okay. There he goes. Okay. Here he goes. Dave Jensen. Nope. Nope. Can't hear you, buddy. Can't hear you. There he goes. Wait. No. Anyway, I'll, I'll get him started. Get him started before he comes in. So Dave is actually a former NHL player. Played in the 1984 U.S. Olympics. He attended Belmont High School and. Lawrence Academy and is widely regarded as one of the top schoolboy players in New England history. And in 1984, he teamed up with Pat LaFontaine and Eddie Olchick on the famed diaper line as a key member of the 1984 U.S. Olympic team. And he, he was a, you know, a key part of that team. And he went on to play in the NHL. He played for the Hartford Whalers, the Caps and Bruins organizations. And he was inducted into the Mass Hockey Hall of Fame. He's also been in sobriety. And, um, you know, we're happy to have him on to tell his story and what he's doing today. How are you, my friend? Hey, uh, great to see Andy. Great to meet all of you. Um, sorry about the audio there. I'm on an iPad and it's a little primitive. Uh, my stand broke, so I'm holding it by, by my hand. So bear with me if you could. No worries. And you're in San Francisco right now, which is cool. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's uh, the magic of uh, the internet, right? In the background, exactly. I'm at Fenway right now. I like that. That's good. The tarp is on. There's no game, but the tarp yeah, is on. I see that. So, welcome to the show. I, I, um, you know, we we've, we've spoken a number of times on different uh, shows and 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 stuff, and I would love for you to tell your story about your uh, career in hockey <laughs> and how um, kind of you know, the evolution of, you know, your addiction and then into recovery and what you're sure. doing today. Sure. It's, um, I'll try to give you the, uh, the brief rendition of it. Um, fortunately I hadn't crossed, uh, the lines into the world of addiction. And, uh, while I was a hockey player back in the day, um, when I grew up, I'm, I'm a Needham kid. I grew up in Needham, Mass. Um, I, like you said, I went to, uh, Belmont Hill school in the ISL as well as, um, uh, Lawrence Academy, uh, played locally here and, uh, was fortunate enough to, uh, as a senior in high school, make the U S Olympic team in 84 and play with the Olympic team, um, come back and play a few high school games after the Olympics, which is pretty cool for Lawrence Academy. And then I was off to the NHL, um, which was great. Uh, um, unfortunately I had some, some major injuries, uh, knee surgeries from my first year on, um, which, uh, which took me into my next life, so to speak. I, I played eight years of pro hockey, um, many, many injuries, many surgeries, um, started a new career in 92 after, uh, you know, I really couldn't play anymore with, uh, shoulder surgeries and knee surgeries. And at that point in time, um, I started a title company. My dad was, a an attorney and he used to do quite a few closings, uh, for the banks and, uh, started a local title company, which was, uh, which was very successful. Uh, life was good. Two kids um, actually kind of merged with 
uh, First American with my title clients back in uh, the uh, early to mid 2000s. And uh, again, life was good. Right. So one day, um, it was around my 40th birthday, I was at uh, my doctor's office getting a physical, my primary, and he was asking me, he was looking at the scars on my shoulders. And, you know, I'd known him for a long time. He was a, a local Needham doctor. And, uh, you know, we're talking about some of the pain I, I was dealing with, uh, shoulder, back pain, that type of stuff. And, you know, he told me uh, he got something that he had something that could help me out with that. And, um, you know, at that point in time, um, you know, I did know, but I didn't know, you know, the world I was getting into. It started off with a pres- uh, prescription for Vicodin. Um, you know, it escalated to uh, Percocet. And then, uh, you know, as you people probably know your body builds up an uh, immunity immunity to uh to the opiates uh you know as far as uh you know the the dosage you're taking and the frequency you need to take it right. um so it, it escalated and uh you know having spoken to him at that point in time i'll never forget and i think you remember this andy uh back in the day talking to him and saying geez uh you know i don't want to become a junkie you know taking this right. stuff. said you know and put myself in an early grave um and he said to me, uh, if you don't manage the pain, you'll be in an early grave without it. You know, and, and I'll never forget that was my license to just freaking go off the edge, so to speak. Uh, because I and think how long I already, ago was this? This is back in the 2004, uh, five area, four or five okay. area, because uh, I was born in 65. So it was right around my 40th birthday. Um, so having said that, um, you know, it just escalated. And, and, you know, like I had resentments against the doctor, but. I had known up to my own, you know, my own like responsibility. I was an adult. Um, you know, it was a certain point in time I knew this wasn't right, but I continued to take the pills because it took away a lot of, a lot of issues that I had to deal with, whether it was stress, you know, with kids and, you know, business and life. It really made me feel good. You know, I'll never forget that euphoric feeling of, uh, you know, of taking the oxys and stuff like that. And, uh, anyway, that was my introduction into the world of addiction. Um, and I, and I remember when I realized, you know, I don't know, after a few months, I kind of, uh, I realized like I was a true, I was a full blown addict and uh, I was driving home one night and I remember I was, I was in tears in my car coming to the realization that like I was a drug addict and, and I didn't know if I'd ever get back across the line, um, to becoming a non-drug addict because it was controlling my life. My life was becoming unmanageable, you know, at that point in time. And the industry you were in, in the title business after hockey, um, I think you. Rem- I remember you saying you were doing a lot of cocaine too, right? Well, that was later on because, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, true addicts switch their addictions and they try everything, you know what I mean, to recover, except for like true recovery, so to speak. That was, for me, that was the last, uh, you know, before I could get well, I needed to, to pretty much go down every rung of the ladder you know, to the, to my rock bottom situation. So that's how I became an, uh, an opiate addict. Um, and that was in 2005. It took me five years of, you know, chronic relapsing and switching addictions and trying this and that, and, uh, you know, trying it my way, so to speak, I could talk hours about that. I'm not going to do that. I think anybody who struggled with addiction knows exactly what I'm talking about. God bless those people who could get it the first time. That wasn't me. Um, it took me many years. It took me, you know, a lot of, uh, creating a lot of records and ruining relationships and jobs and businesses. And, you know, like you said, at the time, um, I had my own title company, but at the time, 
I was working for a major title company, a Fortune 500 company, because like I said, I had become pretty successful in my business to the point where my clients were the, were the top clients in the state as far right. as financing. And they came to me because they wanted to get their title insurance business and, and their title business. And, and those clients wouldn't go unless, you know, unless I would go, so to speak. And they didn't want to, you know, cut me out of the, the action, so to speak, if you know what right. I mean. Right. So they came to me with an offer with a job, you know, uh, sort of a contract to merge, you know, bring my business over there and work for them as a, as a uh, representative, so to speak. Um, but anyway, that was in 2005. Um, and it, it, again, um, I don't think I have to go through the whole story, but, you know, it just it completely devastated my life. Took right. me to a point where in 2010, like you were talking about, you know, my final days um, as an addict up until this point, because uh, God willing, you know, this summer I'll have 10 years in sobriety. In 2010 is when I got nice. sober. But having said that, uh, thank you. Um, but having said that, um, you know, my last uh, harass, so to speak, I put a little bit of time together, Andy, and I was on Suboxone. I was on these other things. But in 2010, the wheels were coming off. And that's when I switched to what you what you were talking about, buying cocaine and, uh, you know, living in a, a basement somewhere where my family didn't know where I was. And, you know, the only time I went out was every two days to get, you know, a couple of cases of beer and, and two eight balls, so to speak. And then I'd go right back to my cave for two days. And that lasted for, um, you know, I, 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 I can't remember, but probably like a month or two before, you know, I, I, I really wanted to kill myself. And I had those thoughts and you know, I had a plan because I, I didn't feel like I had an out, so to speak. I was really, I was hopeless. And, you know, the only thing that kept me from doing it because I was in so much emotional pain. And again, I didn't see an out. I didn't think I could get back across the line into any type of normalcy or, you know, any type of relationship with my wife, kids, or the whole nine yards. And, and uh, the only thing I think that kept me from, um, you know, to executing that plan um, was the fact that, you know, I had two kids and, I, I, and, and a wife, and I, I just couldn't leave that wreckage behind. I left so much wreckage through my addiction over those five plus years that I, you know that was just the one thing i couldn't pull the trigger on thank god um and you know i'll never forget i think i told you the story uh, at those points at that point in time um my wife was uh you know she tried everything to get me well but again it wasn't it had to be me but in the final stages it hit me like a cold uh slap in the face um you know, I used to use the suicide card at the time as mm. a way to manipulate her. You know, mm. I'm going to kill myself if you don't do this or if you don't leave me alone or this and that. And at that point in time, when I was actually really contemplating it and not using it as a card, you know, I said that to her because she said, listen, I'm done. You know what I mean? I can't watch you die. I can't have your kids watch you die. Like, this is it. You know, I'm taking the kids and you know, I'm filing for divorce and the whole nine yards. And, and I told her I was going to commit suicide if she did that. And she said, you know what? She said, go ahead. She said, you're already dead. You're already dead to me. You're Ooh. dead to your kids. And, you know, I'll never forget the look in the eyes as the tears streamed down her face. And it was, like I said, it was, it was, it was a cold slap in the face, but it was a real wake up call to where I was because I knew this woman loved me. I knew I was the father of her children and I knew she wanted me to be well, but I had taken her and that relationship and all relationships right to the end. It dragged them right to death's door with me. 
and I couldn't expect them to walk through it with me. But again, it was a it was a it was a wake up call. I think because at that point in time, I'll never forget thinking, what well, you know. First of all, my first thought being an addict and sick was like, I'll show her. I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? Right. I'm going to put it back on her. But again, I couldn't do it for whatever reasons. Uh, I like to think it was my kids. Maybe I was afraid to do it. Maybe it was God. Uh, you know, whatever it was, it didn't happen at that point in time. But um, you know, and, and then shortly thereafter. When I couldn't do it, I, I knew I had two choices. I, I needed to choose life or death, meaning mm-hmm. I, needed to, I needed to try everything to get well or I needed to die. You know what I mean? And that's right. where I was. So, you know, at that point in time, there was another gentleman um, who was a, a Bruins alumni, and he's a very well-known Bruin who had come to me who had a s- solution to the National Hockey League. Um, I'm just trying to adjust my camera, sorry, with my hands. Can you guys see me okay there? Oh, yeah. Okay, so he had come to me, and he had a solution with uh, the National Hockey League had a program where they help guys with uh, you know addiction, mental illness, and their families. I didn't even know about it at the time, and being an alumni, you know, I, I was called, I, I, I could, I was eligible to get the help, and um, you know, he had uh, he had suggested I take it, and at the point in time again, you know, going down, kicking and screaming, um, you know, I tried to drag that out. You know, I don't think I need to go to. I was California for. They said 30 days at that time. And I said, yeah, that's a long time, you know what I mean, for me to commit because, you know, I'm an addict and I don't want to do that. And, you know, he said to me, he said, what do you get to lose, man? He knew where I was. He came to see me. And he's like, what do you get to lose? You know, it's basically what my wife said. Like, you got nothing to lose by trying to say, he, he, he said, look where you are. You know, right. you, have, you have nothing. You're basically dead to everybody, you know, and whether he, he had talked to my wife, like, it's the second time I heard that, right? Right. So I, I did get the courage to, to finally accept the help through the National Hockey League and talking to one of the, the gentlemen there who offered me a lifeline. Um, you know, I had to, I had to enter a, a detox clinic back here before I got in a plane to, to a place called the Canyon out in Malibu, Malibu. And, uh, Sounds rough. Yeah. So, well, it was a nice place, but I'll tell you this, the, uh, what I needed to do, the recovery part of it, like getting the help clinically, um, even getting to some issues that I didn't even know bothered me in my childhood and some traumas or, you know, come to acceptance of things and, and creating a whole new person from scratch, basically. Um, like that, that's the program is what saved my life. The combinations were beautiful up there, but it was a therapist and the, and the doctors and the group support and the foundation I built up there. Like I said, I didn't want to go up there for three days after 30, you know, I was begging to stay longer. And, and fortunately, they extended me where I was out there for three months almost. And at that point in time, um, you know, again, I wanted more, more, more. And they, there was a sort of a uh, progression system out there where I was, uh, you know, in the residential area. And then there was the aftercare area. Right. But, you know, I knew I was getting well and I knew I had a chance. I hadn't felt that in a long time. So I wanted more, more, more. And uh, finally at the, at the last stage, I said, you know what, you're ready for the next step. And, and what I did from, from there is I, I, I came home to, and I went to a sober house back here. Cause again, it was, a, it was advised to me and I was willing to listen. And I entered a sober house out in North Attleboro. It was called the patient for sober living. And the director there is still one of my best friends, a guy named Mike Henson to this day. Wait, wait, what was the name of the sober house? Association for sober living in North. Oh, ASL. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Big Mike. Yeah, Big Mike is one of my best friends till this day. Still uh, going. Yeah, he's the best. He really is, and and I and I'm I'm by there 
frequently to talk to him and, and to, to, you know, his uh, residents now. So having said that, um, you know, I was willing, I thought that even after three months of, of the foundation and, and to get into the point where I was, I really felt like if you just dropped me back in the environment I came from, I didn't have that great of a chance, you know? So it was advised to me to look into a sober house. I remember calling Mike from Malibu and I remember meeting him in his office and him telling me how it was going to be and not me telling him how it was going to be. And, you know, and, and he was very stern and it was a, it was a, it was a very intense program, so to speak, but I stayed there for six months. And, uh, you know, I think those steps saved my life and it, it made me, you know, to, it brought me to a point where I was able to, to connect back with my family. And, you know, I, I started a business, a hockey business. That has, DHA has, hockey. Yeah. DHA hockey has been really great. But the most important thing I've done is, uh, is charitable work. And I've done it through, uh, you know, DCR with the governor's office, uh, inner city programs and anti-bullying programs that we do with the Bruins alumni, um, you know, street hockey events with the kids and pizza. And, you know, we talk to the kids about, you know, um, you know, life lessons and, and purpose and helping others. And, you know, more importantly, uh, you know, this bullying thing out there is, uh, it's, it's, it's an epidemic in its own right and it's killing kids. So, we try, you know, we stand up and we fight against bullying and we talk to kids about how making a positive difference, not only in their own lives, but in other people's lives is the greatest feeling you can ever have and the greatest thing you can ever do. And kids recognize that. I, you know, I, one thing I share with them is I was fortunate to, to, to reach some of my dreams, meaning, and he talked about playing the Olympics in the National Hockey League, um, you know, scoring my first goal in the Olympics or the National Hockey League was a dream come true. It was an awesome feeling. But you know what? When I think think about those failings and the failings where in recovery where I've helped someone or helped a kid like I do, you know what I mean? It made a positive difference in their lives when they really needed help. It's the best feeling in the world. It's better than those, better than those failings I, I just described in the Olympics and uh, the National Hockey League. And we have the power to do that every day, you know? I, I think some of the ladies, there's two of them. Yep. They have questions. Um yep. For you, thank you for telling the, the, the story because, um, you know, people sometimes think, oh, well, you played, you know, pro hockey and everything's glamorous, but, um, you know, and had all the, um, the athletic accolades, but, you know, at the end of the day, you were kind of, um, you know, broken in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know what? The, yes. I think we all are, you know, we, we all have issues, right? And we all have, I, I have none. <laughs> Especially you, I was gonna say. Oh, I got tons of them, believe me. Exactly. Zanson does too, right? Yeah, well, well he's got Forget more than it. anybody. Yeah, he's he's one of my good buddies too, so I could say that about him. But having said that, um, yeah, you know, like we're, I think we're all broken to some level and there's we're always trying to get better as human beings and individuals. So, you know, I think, you know, doing the twelve steps and being in recovery, like I think it's great for any human being, whether you're an addict or an alcoholic. Or Agreed. Not, you know? Totally. Wait, what do you guys think? What do you think, Kimberly? David, we met, um, if you recall, I think on Crosscheck, right? I think, yes. Yeah. You yes. Were there <laughs> yep. um, good to see you again. You too, Kimberly. Yeah. <laughs> I love your story. It's an amazing story. I love um, stories that come from such a, you know, such a gritty background. When you went down and you went to the, to the, to the depths of that pain and you, you rode the elevator all the way down, hit rock bottom. And then, and then did the, did the steps or did it the right way? I, it, personal opinion, 
you know, you go to treatment, you stay as long as you can, stay in the bubble as long as you can. Then you get to, then you go to sober living, you stay as long as you can. You know, if you can get a good year in, you're, you're, you're in a far better place um, for being successful than if you just went to 30 days. And like you said, drop you back into the same environment, you're going to relapse. It's just 30 days isn't enough unless you're, you're completely, uh, like I said, in a bubble. So you can't really go out. You, you're not testing anything. That's why sober living is so important. But yeah, it's a um, great story. Great story. Good to Thank see you. you. Thank you. You too, Kimberly. And uh, yeah, you know, what you said is so true. And, uh, you know, I wish I didn't have to go down like to rock bottom to death's door, but you know, that's my story. And it's allowed me to help so many other people who have gotten to those depths or, you know, because again, I, I really feel like I know I was, I was right at the, at the choice between life and death. And I was fortunate because I was inches away from the grave and it's, uh, it's just reality. Um, but again, it's helped me. It's allowed me to help many other people. And, you know, even through my mistakes for those five years, and like you say, doing it the right way, it was the only way I think that would have worked for me for where I was at was that commitment and that foundation that built me that I built through, like you said, almost a year. And the last, actually the last thing I did when I moved out of the sober house after six months, so now I had nine months in recovery, I moved in with three other guys from the sober house, you know what I mean, for almost a year. So we'd go to meetings. I had that support group. These are guys I built a relationship with, a trust, and a friendship. So there was even another step I took because, again, I, I wanted to make sure and secure my life because I knew where I came from and I couldn't go back because if I went back, I was a dead man, you know? I was dead to everybody. And that was even more important to me myself, you know, the, the, the carnage, the wreckage I created in my relationships. And you know, I've been fortunate enough to build that back up and then some, you know, with right. the people that are most to me. And uh, it's just, it's a phenomenal thing to be able to do and to be purposeful and useful to the community and kids and all that. It's just, it's a dream come true. Chris. So, thank yeah. So uh, great story. Thank you. Um, I grew up with the Bruins. My, my family, was friends with uh, a couple of the players way back in the day. But um, my question to you is, do you feel that because you were in your 40s or just before your 40th, whatever, in your 40s, that you uh, took that step to seek uh, recovery? Do you feel that that played a really big part in, it sounds like you did it kind of the first try. Um, do you feel like that that because of your maturity and because of your life, uh, where it had it already had been, as opposed to some of these kids that are like uh, eighteen to twenty five, where they don't have all those life experiences? Do you think that it was it, it played a huge role in your your path to recovery? Well, I don't know. Um, you know, I can speak to this for myself that you know I was I, I was anything but my first try. Um, you know, I had been to uh, maybe 10 detoxes over the five years that I was out there. I had been to a couple other residential treatment centers. One was up in, up in New Hampshire called the Plymouth house back in 2007. Yeah. So, but you know, I wasn't ready to do what was necessary through mm -hmm. the whole thing. I had to take it down to the bottom of the ladder, unfortunately. So it didn't serve me any better than if I was 18 years old or 15 or whatever, in my opinion, because I took it all the way to the bottom. I tried everything. I resisted every, everything that was offered to me. 
all the advice, all the help, you know, and I had to do it my way right to the end until I was willing to surrender at death's door to, you know, what needed to be. So well, I got my, my story is one of, of, I wish, I hope nobody takes it that far. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Because um, if I was willing to listen earlier, I would have got it earlier, but it's just, you know, and I feel fortunate nowadays, you know, and I feel sorry for the people that I hurt for so long, but fortunate that I did take it that way because I think it allows me to help people that have struggled for many years and relapsed many times. And, you know, because I was able to turn it around, you know, taking it to death's door, you know, had I stopped any sooner and got it the first time, you know, there's sort of a trust and recovery when you've walked in my shoes, as I think we all know. And, you know, when you're talking to people like that who are hopeless, you know, and have are spiritually bankrupt and have taken it to where I took it, like to know that, that, that I was there and was able to get into recovery and still in recovery and long-term recovery and be useful and purposeful. I think it gives them hope, you know, but I was not a first timer. I was a uh, many, many tries and, you know, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise my plan the first five years for anybody. I'd advise the end of my, my, my story, you know, where I was one accept. Hey, Hey Dave, will you give your, um, I have two, two things for you. A, what would you say to someone out there who, uh, who may, may be struggling right now, given we're in the uh, COVID-19 world, what would you, um, you know, are there any parting um, sure. words of wisdom? And then I want you to give um, DAJ hockey. Yeah. And- well, well, you know what? There's help available. And I've been, you know, I stay connected all the time and, you know, talking to residential treatment centers and a good friend of mine, um, you know, Timmy Rassis owns the Washburn House in Worcester. And, you know, these places are taking precautions with COVID-19, um, you know, but, but I wouldn't hesitate one minute if you have a problem, reaching out to them and getting help because I would advise, I would suggest that you get into treatment right away. That's the only thing that's going to help you and save your life and commit to what you can. Now, I was fortunate with the NHL to have a program available to me through them, but those same av- programs are available to anybody, even if you have mass health or whatever it is. Like You can get into a great program like Timmy Rassus and and not to plug him, but I, I trust him and I trust his program at Washburn House. But he has a great program through the state that I think gives you 60 to 90 days in that. Then he has some great, uh, I think, um, sober homes for men and women that he can recommend. I'm sure you ladies can too, and you too, Andy. You know, for that next step, I would I would suggest the same plan that that I put into put into action, you know, is available for them. And I wouldn't hesitate one moment, you know, to, to get into an ASFL. Excellent. And, and, um, if somebody wants to reach out to you through DAJ. Yeah. So, so DAJ hockey is, uh, com. You can, you can reach out to it at any point in time. Um, you know, at this point in time, no, we're not doing anything, of you know, course. our clinics are closed and all that stuff. And, you know, which is fine, but we'll hopefully, you know, when this thing lifts, we'll look at rescheduling. We're doing a lot of the Kent nice house right now. So, you know, those programs will be up back up and running when, when it's available and clinics and yeah, 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 that type of stuff. So that will come. And then, you know, more importantly too, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting out there and, and running the anti-bullying programs in the middle schools and working with kids and, you know, in the inner cities and different communities, you know, and again, that's all on hold until, you know, we're in uncharted waters here until we can, uh, you know, get to the other side of this virus. Well, you are a good man, my friend. Thank you uh, for coming on. 
Thank you. You are too, Andy, and, and you two ladies. Nice to see you again, and uh, all the best to you. Stay safe. Nice to see you, Dave. Take Let's care. talk soon, and we'll have you back. Okay. Have, have a great right. day. Thank all you. All right, Dave. Thanks. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Dave Jensen, everybody from San Francisco. <laughs> um, let's what, what a great guy. He, don't you think? I mean, just such a down to earth. Yeah, very down to earth. Good story. Good story. Yeah, I like him. Now we have our next guest on, which is Sadie Renero. Oh, hi everyone. Hi, hi Sadie. Sadie. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Chris is going to introduce you. She's going to do oh. the honors. Okay. How about that, Chris? <laughs> Here's to me. No, just kidding. All right. Let's welcome Sadie Renero. Yes. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, Sadie left Lebanon and moved to the States at age 20. She wrote a book, Not a Victim, which is about shedding light on women issues in the Middle East, but also to bring awareness to these issues is still happening all over the world. She is about bringing light to a generation that has been silenced. She grew up witnessing rape, abuse, suicide, drug overdoses, and was not allowed to question it. Uh, she's also been in, invited to join panels at colleges to discuss women issues and share her personal story. Wow. I, I can't wait to hear your story. That's me. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I just want to say hi to David, who just left. And I mean, I got to the end of his story, but that's a courageous man right there. Absolutely. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Kimberly. <laughs> oh, tell us um, about your story, because it's, it, it's um, you know, from reading your bio, it sounds like, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of moving parts there. So we'd love to hear about it and, and some of the things you've been dealing with and, um, and learn more about your book. Yes. Yeah, so, um, as you said, my name is Sadie and I grew up in Lebanon, um, which is a very tiny country in the middle East. Um, it's very, it's very progressive on the outside it is very, um, we have a lot of Muslims and Christians, so it doesn't really look like any other Arabic country. But at the heart of it, it's very Middle Eastern, and we do go by all these norms. And there's a lot of things that we just don't talk about. Um, inappropriate things that we just swipe under the rug, and mental health is one of them. Rape, um, anything that puts women in the front, they try not to really allow it. Um, now, this is changing a lot right now. There, Before, you know, the outbreak of COVID-19, there was a huge revolution happening in Lebanon for months about human rights and mainly about women issues and stuff. So there has been a few um, things are moving along that line. Um, as for me and my generation, well, we witnessed a civil war for 15 years, and my generation in the 80s was very different than the one that is right now. So it was, it was very hushed, those issues. And in 1989 is when the war broke out in my city. And we all went underground. And before that, we really had no idea in my region 
that there was a war happening for 15 years in Beirut, in the south, in the north. We really were very sheltered. My parents didn't let us feel anything that's happening outside our region. Um, but I've always had this thing about me that was so different that um, I questioned everything. Nothing made sense to me. And if it didn't, I was very outspoken, very loud. Um, I wasn't really submissive in a way that I took everything I was supposed to do and did it because I was a good girl, right? So no, I wanted to question everything. When I was told, you don't answer men like that, I was like, well, why? You know? Right. Um, so I've always had this in the back of my head that I was very different than a lot of girls around me. And then when we got out of the shelter, this is when everything hit hard. Um, we weren't, we weren't really asked if we were okay. Everybody just wanted to continue life normal and okay, the war's over. Let's pick up where we left off and just be happy, right? The war is over. Well, that did not sit well with me and a lot of people my age. We had a lot of questions. We had a lot of issues. We saw a lot of things that like nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds even like shouldn't be seeing. Um, there was a lot of anger, a lot of anger of all of us, violence, fights. I'd get in trouble all the time for fighting. My dad had to pick me up from all these police stations and from fighting and blood and we just really didn't know how to deal with what was happening to us. And everybody resorted to self-medication, drugs, fights. By the age of 17, I had lost like six, seven of my friends to suicide, car accidents, um, fights, you name it, right? Well, a lot of trauma. A lot of it. And we were just the bad kids because we didn't really stay in school like we're supposed to. We ran away from school multiple times and, and we didn't just, we didn't understand really what's happening to us. Like why so much violence? Why um, that gang mentality that every region we have to take care of our own, you know, and if someone from another city come into our territory, what are you doing here? Like we are very territorial. Um, as for me, my mental health started taking a really, really bad turn. I suffered from a lot of depression. I had blackouts when I would get into really angry fits that I wouldn't even know what I did during those hours, you know? Um, and my family had to deal with it. You know, like my older sister was much older than me. She's like 14 years older. And at that time she had gone to Canada but she was a very good girl, you know? She did everything right. She did everything like she's supposed to. And my parents were older. And here comes this teenager who is like nothing else I've seen before. What are we going to do with her? You know? Wild child. Yeah, they really didn't know what to do with me. And, you know, we, we did not live in poverty. My, my family was really good financially, right? I had a nice car. I had the best clothes in the world. So all the the question was, why? Why are you doing that? 
You know, you had a perfect life. Why would you suffer from depression? Why would you attempt suicide? Why would you do this? And why would you do that? Um, your parents are giving you everything you want. And that also did a number on me because then my guilt was there, right? What was wrong with me? I should be very happy, right? Why it's on the outside, right? Not on the inside. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't I be happy? I do have everything any other teenager is wishing for. I've asked for nothing that wasn't there the next day. What so, do you think it was? Yeah. What was the missing? What was missing? Anger. I, I was angry. I was very, very angry. I was depressed. I wanted more than the government was giving us. I wanted a future that... A lot of us wanted, but nothing really was there for us. They teach us about other countries when we're younger, assuming that we are going to immigrate. You know, um, it is the talk of our generation. Where are you going to go after? So you're really living in a country where you know you really have no future, right? Hmm. So, what did you do, Sadie? Hmm? so what did you do? What did you end up doing? Um, I did everything I'm not supposed to. <laughs> I, I, fights, really, violence, depression, um, very, very, very short fuse, bad temper. No one can really talk to me, but it was never treated. It was just me being a brat. I had someone tell me, you should just kill yourself to rid your parents of your headache. Um, until now, I have people, I'm almost 40 with two kids and a life, and they still tell me, yeah, you were just a, you know, you were just a bratty teenager. There was nothing wrong with you. You were just doing this for attention, right? Even now. Don't you love that? I even now, like, hear, and hear, hear or from people back home? From people back home, from people who visit, like, you challenge the norm, so they don't. I did. Right, so that so it becomes uncomfortable to people who you um, yeah. grew up with. You, 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 they're afraid, right? You, yes. You scare them. I did scare them a lot. Like here comes a teenager who should look and act like a um, a, a well groomed Middle Eastern girl. Yet I had tattoos, piercings, shaved head, um, uh, fights. You know. In the middle of the street, I, I would just get so angry if someone talked to me wrong and I was just punching and fighting. I beat up my principal when I was 17. Wow. Like, and I was super tiny and I suffered from an eating disorder. So I had really no idea where that rage would come from to pin down a six foot man who was in the MP during the Civil War. You so how did you end up, did you channel all those feelings into your writing? Is that how you ended up? Oh, my writing was the only thing I can do, really. And I didn't want to write in Arabic because if my parents can read it, we're also French educated. My parents can read French. So how am I going to write if they both, if, if my journals ever came out, everybody can read it, right? So I taught myself English. I was very connected to the language and I, I started 
listening to Alanis Morissette, whom I was obsessed with, by the way. Um, and <laughs> a lot of hate I, there, though. There was a lot of hate. A lot of. I love her. She's coming I in contact. And she <laughs> was right. revolutionary in the nineties, so that fed into where I was at the time. Like I was different, right? I would. I had like a little cassette recorder, and whenever she comes on the radio, I would record, and then I would sit in my room and rewind. And, and play and rewind and play until I was able to spell out whatever she was saying. And I would go translate it into French. And I started learning the words that way until, um, and, and then I would write in French in my journal, translate it and rip out the French pages and keep the English. And I was doing that at the age of like 11 and 12. I remember uh, my first journal um, was after my mom had come from Canada uh, my sister had her son and she brought me a journal and I was like, huh? So that's what American kids do. <laughs> right. They write in a fluffy journal. <laughs> and that, right? so I started writing in English and I noticed that I can express myself very well in a very foreign language to me that I only watched on TV. Um, and everything we had was uh, subtitled in Arabic, like translated. Um, and I was never able to read fast enough in Arabic. And it would get me so frustrated. Um, and then I would force myself to understand the English. And I really learned like super fast. Okay. So, so now in your book, um, well, let me, let me back up for a second. So, so how did that experience you had growing up? I mean, how is life for you today? Well, after I've seen all of that, I've seen and survived um, two attempted suicide when I was a teenager. Um, one, I was much younger and um, my brother, Tony, my oldest brother, is actually the one who saved me. He's always been my rock, even until now. Like if I'm going through something depressed or anything and I don't want anyone to know, I really avoid talking to him because the second he hears my voice, he knows that something's wrong. Um, right away, he, he can tell. Um, so what I, I was really at my bedroom window all day. And if I have my room locked, that's good. Because now I'm out of the way. I'm not causing trouble. I'm not fighting. I'm not angry. I'm not throwing stuff around the house. So she's quiet, leave her alone, you know? But whatever was happening behind those doors was really, really ugly and messy. And I was left with it by myself. But my brother came at night and he was like, how long has she been in her room? And my mom said, she's been there all day. And he broke it down. And I was literally inches away from my whole body being out of the window. He grabbed me by the neck and pulled me in. And I don't remember. I completely. My, my memory, like I have no memory of what I said to him, but I was holding my doll. I, I don't know why. I can't really tell you why, but I had this doll. Her name was Stephanie and I had her since I was little. So I was holding her and I was kept telling him that just, me, just let me go for a little bit. I'll come back. You know, I, I just want it to be quiet up here. Um, I'll just jump and come back for a little bit. Like I really didn't even know what was going on. Um, he slept in my bed holding me for like three, four days. Uh, so he's been a, a real supportive 
he has for you. He has been. And my last attempt, I was about 17 and my brother-in-law and my sister and their kids were in, in Lebanon. And that summer was really dark for me, but I never really told anyone. Um, I felt like there was just a shadow following me everywhere, you know, like this, like a Dementor. I don't know if you watch Harry Potter or read it. It's like someone just sucking the soul and the life I'm out of me. for Harry Potter. I, I, I miss that. But yeah, but it's just like, it's like, there's this shadow sucking the life out of me. And I just decided to take all the pills that I had at once. Oh, you did? Oh my God. I did. Well, that's another thing, like a, a side issue um, with mental health and in those, that part of the world is it's a little different now, but at the time, um, it was nothing really, you know, they don't really understand anything. They just drug you and send you home. So you don't cause trouble. And the mentality was, yeah, you're just a brat acting up. Right. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening is my parents who really didn't know what to do with me, sent me to all these doctors who are older middle Eastern men that looked at me one as a woman to be, you know, hysterical. We do things because we have hormones. Right. Um, and each one of them ended up giving me a drug, but none of them really should be working together. Um, if you go to one doctor here, for example, they would never put these drugs together. But with me, there was no communication. So every time something didn't work here, give her that pill here, give it, but she's not waking up to school. Give her this one. That'll wake her up. Um, she's angry. Give her that one. That'll calm her down. She's not sleeping. Give her this. So I became an addict without really wanting to be an addict, you know, even though there was all these drugs around me by everyone, I never really did do any of the, of, of like the hardcore drugs that were done on the street. It was handed to me by professionals. Mm. You know, telling theme. That's what David was talking about earlier as well. So I miss that, but yeah. So you give. I was literally about seventy pounds because of my eating disorder, right? Like about thirty-two kilos. And now, as an adult, when I look back and I see what they were giving me, and I was like, how? Was that okay, given a kid that tiny, that amount of medicine? No wonder why nothing was working. No wonder I was more depressed. No wonder I was more suicidal. You know? When you, when you. Absolutely. Did you, Sadie, how did you, you eventually put all of this into a book, right? Are you in this public? Yes, some of it. I, I worked it out, fictionalized, and I talked about that. Um, more so the suicide, really. Um, for me, after I took all these pills, I, I wasn't thinking about the word suicide, to be honest with you. I was thinking about just sleeping. I just wanted it to all stop. In my head, I was like, I, I just... I just want to be okay for just a little bit. You know, if I take a few more pills and I started with like three, four, and I was like, okay, I'm still awake. This is still very loud. Um, 
and despair is the worst. Like, I wish I was feeling pain. I wish I was feeling even depressed. I wish I was feeling anything. It was utter emptiness and it was so ugly not to feel, right? Do you think that you probably were feeling them, but you weren't allowed to express them, therefore you were unable to identify them? I wish I can tell you all I wanted to do was just to, to rest. The only word that was in my head was just rest. You know, I, I, ju- I just wanted everybody to stop. I, I wanted all this heaviness in my head to stop. I wanted to, if I don't feel anything, then I just want to sleep. How long that sleep was, I really didn't care. I just wanted to sleep. And I ended up taking all of them and I slept almost like on and off. Um, And my brother-in-law walked in and he has been in Canada since he was 17. So his outlook on drugs and mental health was so different than your average or normal Middle Eastern man. He He was more aware of it. So when he looked at me, um, I had friends over too, and I, they didn't even notice that I was going in and out of my bedroom, taking pills. I didn't tell anyone. I just wanted everything to stop. And he looked at me from what they were telling me, and he, he, he said, that kid's not sleeping. He shook me, and I was, like, just gone. And everything became so chaotic and you don't really call um, ambulances in Lebanon, you know, he put me in the car and he flew me to the hospital. And from what I heard is that I actually, they had to resuscitate me and pump my stomach. And I stayed there for a few days and um, suicide in Lebanon is a crime against state and religion. So if you do commit suicide, um, whatever your religious belief is, you do not get the service because that life is not yours that you took. You know what I mean? So let's say I committed suicide and I was Christian. I will not be allowed to be buried in the church because that's a huge sin. Is that men and women? Men and anybody. If you can, that's why like churches, usually if you're a friends with the family, um, they rule it a different, they, if you know, like they will forge the papers that you didn't commit suicide because then you will not be buried properly. So my parents told everybody that I had, you know, um, I was food poisoned. And also it's very embarrassing to tell people that, oh, my kid tried to commit suicide. It reflects on the parents. So it was a lot of people until now think I actually had food poisoning. That's why I spent all this time in the, in the hospital. Um, but also if a teenager tries to commit suicide, the crime has to be pinned on someone um, by law. So when I woke up in the hospital, that you guys are going to love this one, get a kick out of it. The psychiatrist who came in to talk to me when I was in the bed with all these machines, tubes, everything, he tells me, don't think you're going to get away with this crap. Look what you did to your parents. 
Yeah. That's it, awful. Yeah, no, that's a that's a teenager who, who just went through something like this, more guilt on me. Look what I did to my parents. And he opened up the curtain and there's this huge um, glass window. And I see my father on the floor sitting, my mom banging her head on the wall, on the ground, sitting on her purse, my siblings, and about 15 police officers investigating to pin this suicide on someone. Someone has to pay the price. Um, now, you know, my family, I, well, didn't die, so there was no crime, but let's say I did, someone has to be held responsible. So my parents were afraid from every single angle. Um, so I, I did not get any help after that. I refused to go to any psychiatrist. I still did get my pills though. You can buy them at the pharmacy anywhere. You just pay and you go in, it's a tablet, you buy it and you leave. It didn't have to be a prescription. So I always had a way to get what I needed. Um, especially Xanax is like Tic Tacs in Lebanon. You really get it everywhere. Um, and it was hushed. That's it. We moved past it. It was food poisoning and we don't talk about it again. When you moved to the States, did you move by yourself or how did yeah. you, you just picked up and went? Well, not, not that simple. What happened to me is um, anger and depression and all of this kept getting worse and worse and worse. And when I got to be 20, um, I was very attached to my sister's kids from Canada. It's like, that was kind of my lifeline. Every, I hold on to the summer until her kids come um, so they were kind of the only bright light in my life, especially that at that period, now she had a baby, her name is Angie. Now she's in college. Um, but at the time she was a baby and that year, my sister wasn't able to go to Canada and I got even a deeper depression that, oh, now I don't get to see Angie or Elias or Aquilina. Like, what am I living for? Right. I, I wait every summer to see them. But my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law had a different plan. So my brother-in-law tells my dad, why don't you give her to me? Okay. Um, I think this is the only thing that will get this girl one out of jail or six feet under. Like there's only one thing that can work at this time. Let her come over. Um, and I was just so angry at the country. It really, I it just did not fit into any Middle Eastern norm. I was so different than everybody. <clears throat> I refused to be groomed to this perfect Middle Eastern girl who's supposed to clean and cook and have a pretty husband with money. Um, you know, I, I just didn't want that life. There's, there's a, there's a movie on Netflix that you that's a four part series called unorthodox. Oh yeah. And it's about a young Orthodox girl living in Brooklyn who escapes mm -hmm. and moves to Germany for the very things that you're She's talking Hasidic about. She's a Hasidic Jew. Yes. I know. I, I have it. I have it saved because my friend keep wanting me to watch it. Yeah. It's, it's spot on. Are these things that are covered in the book? Some, a lot of them. Yes, but I, I fictionalized it and I'll tell you why. Um, so anyways, me leaving was the only solution that my family saw. 
So my brother-in-law yet again saves my life. Um, he took me to Canada and I thought I was only going for a month, but really they were planning on keeping me there. Um, so I, when I landed in Canada, first when I was leaving, I had all my pills hidden in pockets of jeans and I, I can't leave without my, you know, my fix. Um, my brother, the night before I left, opened my luggage and he goes, take them all out. And I was like, take what? He was like, I, I know you have them all with you. And I know that you have been buying them and hoarding since you knew you were leaving. You need to empty your, you cannot go with this to your sister. She has a teenager. Um, Aquilina at the time was about 12. Um, he said, you cannot bring this to your sister. So I took everything out and, and I left. Now, I really thought I won't be able to live without anything, but my recovery was so different than everybody else I've, I've ever encountered. Physical and emotional. The second I, that plane lifted, I felt like a completely different human being. Um, I was happy. I felt like for the first time in my life, I was... I was feeling normal things. Like I was sad that I'm leaving my family. I'm going to miss them. Sad I'm leaving my brothers, you know, but I also felt relieved. Like I'm going to a life that I always imagined outside of here. And when I went to Canada, I saw the life that I used to see in movies. Like, Oh my God, they really look like that. Or they, they like, they have normal lives and you know, so I never had to go to any facility to recover. I never took any medication to recover. I just worked on myself, um, by myself. There were a few nights where I had fevers and I would throw up in the bathroom, but I didn't let anyone know in, in the household at my sister's. My niece saw me as a superhero. And really, I decided to clean myself up and be the person that she thought I was, you know, and she was 12 and she looked at me like, like, whoa, like I'm her idol. And in my head, and I was like, how can I be anybody's idol? I'm so broken. I don't even know where I start and where I begin. And there's this, this girl, this 12 year old little girl who's looking at me like I am her entire world. So I had let her down. I couldn't, I really couldn't. She saw me, I had to see, like she wanted to dress like me, she wanted to be me, and she didn't know who I really was. Um, she painted this image of her aunt in such a perfect way that I had to work harder on myself to be the person that she's always been seeing. Um, and it happened, I, I, I just got better and I haven't had a single pill since I was 20 and I'm almost 39 years old. That's amazing. Great job. Very good job. That's awesome. Um, Everyone's recovery uh, looks different, right? What? It's okay. Everyone's recovery looks different. You get yeah. there how you get there, you know? Yeah, I did. And I, I worked on myself. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, the last 19 years, everything, you don't really recover from mental illness like that. Or if you suffer from depression, it never goes away. It's a I lot of work. It's a lot of work. Ongoing. I fight my demons every single day. Um, I just, 
I, I learned this. I lived with this brain for 35, 39 years. I know what it takes. I can read the signs. You know, I, I know when it is coming and I have a very supportive husband and he can tell um, if I'm going off roads and he anchors me and he brings me back in. So it hasn't been easy, but it's doable and I'm doing it every day. I fight it. Can you tell us if somebody wants to buy the book, this is great. And we could probably talk to you forever because your story is amazing. Um, if somebody wants to buy the book, where can they go and find it? Right, my book. So what I did with my book to get you to where you can buy it, because not yet, but um, I wanted in my book to talk about all these issues and all these taboos that we went through as children of war that no one really wanted to talk about. Um, and it, this is why I call it um, a skip generation. They didn't want to deal with us. So what they did is they just swiped our issues under the rug and skip mm -hmm. us onto the next generation. The one who is not damaged, right? This one right. is pretty. So let's just focus on this one. This generation of teenagers who grew up after the war, we're just going to pretend they're not there. Mm -hmm. it, it's not pretty for the community, right? So I, that did not resonate well with me. And I've always known that I have the story in me that I needed to tell and when I got to college and I was doing English literature, there was this ATP program in Bridgewater University where you can um, submit a project based on research. And I won the grant right away. And then I started my research and I started writing my book. Okay. And I wanted to bring in all these stories of all these teenagers that I've heard of friends or not i wanted to give them that voice it did not it still has not set well with me that their story was never heard right mm -hmm. so what i did is i fictionalized the truth i gave a voice to this generation through a girl and a group of friends and i kind of assigned each one of them a plot where i knew that happened but was never did it through, channeled it through them I channeled it through my fiction. Okay. So I worked on my project and I had a friend who I feel so ashamed to even forget her name because this is how much, um, how sometimes the brain works. But that friend of mine was a party and they got, um, it, we, they used to call it the devil's parties because when you listen to heavy metal of stuff, that's the devil's music and you're just like raising demons basically that, that's how they see you um so they they riled them all up and got locked up and my friend actually got raped in jail and ended up pregnant and um and then she disappeared off the map uh, her parents sent her to france we never heard anything about her until today over all these years i kind of forgot what her name is that's it she's gone she's forgotten she never existed and that that ne that was never okay with me, even when I was little. And I wanted to talk about it. And I would, and they would tell me to keep my mouth shut. Uh, we don't talk about rape. We don't. God forbid the community knows you're no longer a virgin. Who's gonna marry you, right? How? Yeah, that's awful. See, we've got people who want to know how to get your book. How how can they find yeah. it? 
So this is what I was getting at. My book was rejected for over eight years. It is too controversial. Um, so I had getting rejections over rejections and I stepped away from the book for a little bit when I was teaching. Um, but then I resigned from my teaching job and I started focusing again only on my writing. And I finally got me a publisher. Um, we, we've been talking back and forth and, um, I'm getting set up with an editor, a developmental editor right now to kind of fluff it up. Um, so I am not sure how long the process will be, but it's in the works. Oh, it is finally in the works professionally. Like it's not just something on my laptop that I talk about. Uh, even though when I was, when I was in college, that project and that book got me to so many conferences. I was on so many panels talking about those issues um, I won the anchor, which is the national conference of undergraduate research all the way in Utah and Weber university. And my college sent me there to talk about my project, about my book. Um, a lot, a few chapters will publish in, um, academic journals. Right. But then when I was done with college and went back to real life, as I call it, um, I was left to fend for myself and I, I couldn't have, I couldn't find anybody who would believe in the message that I'm trying to convey and take that journey with me. Um, a lot of agents got to the rape scene and stopped. And I was like, this is very graphic and this is a Middle Eastern novel. They just don't add up. Okay. But I stuck to my guns and I refused to change it. I wrote that book so I can talk about this. I'm not going to change it. Um, so finally, I found this um, amazing publisher and herself um, during the Civil War in 1991 or 1992. She was an American reporter in Lebanon after the Civil War. So she was, um, she was already emotionally invested in that part of the world. Um, and when she heard about my story, um, you know, she wanted it and now we're working on it and I do have a website and yes, I give you a website. A, yes. And I do have my social media. So I keep people, um, updated. Um, mainly I, I, I post there my poetry, which is also based on that life. But now I actually have a real thing to tell them, which is about my publishing plan and we, I mean, we're talking about translating it to multiple languages. Uh, so far, we have French, Arabic, and Spanish. After this is done, we're going to go and publish it in other languages. I love it. Um, yeah, it's finally out. It's finally going to do what it was meant to do. Give your website address. Yes. Uh, my website is Sadie Hadesanero. Okay. Um, which is S A I D E H A R B R A N E R O dot com dot com. Yes. And if somebody wants to reach out, learn more, that's where they can go. Yes. My Instagram is also Sadie had a Um, but my Facebook, which I had it in, it was a really weird name and then Facebook's not letting me change it, uh, but it's my inked parchment. Okay. 
Or I think you can also find it with, with Sadie H. Ranero. But Facebook is a very foreign land to me. I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This is great. And I, I, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I hope I didn't just like talk your ears off. No. You did a great job, Sadie. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a wonderful story. And we're looking forward to uh, seeing the book. Thank you so much, you guys. It really means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Well, that's our, that's our show for the week. Is that our show for the week, Kimberly? That's our show. It's our show for today. because we're For back today, because we'll be Friday. back live. On Friday. On Friday, Friday. Michael will have us back. 9.30. (laughs) All right. We'll see you on Friday. Have a great couple of days, and we'll see you then. Have a nice Passover. You've been listening to The Map.